Okay, good morning. It's good to be here with you this morning. Um, yeah, for those of you that don't know me and I, I maybe see one or two new faces here this morning or visiting people, my name is uh, Rudy. Uh, I'm one of the leaders and elders here at the Rock Church. And uh, yeah, I have the privilege to be uh, carrying on with our se- uh, series. I wanted to say season, but a series um, that we are in looking at Galatians 5, verses 22 to 23, and this series of locally grown, how to cultivate the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Um, and it's been a fascinating series to see what God has been doing through it, uh, been speaking into the lives of His people. And as Glenn had mentioned from that first sermon, that it is rooted, of course, in the truth of what Jesus said in John 15, that if, if we abide in Him and He in us, then we will bear much fruit. And it is to the Father's glory that we bear much fruit. And so that is what we've been looking at. What does it look like then for God's people and God's church to be bearing fruit as the Father prunes us, as the Father is pruning His vineyard? And Jesus said, he is the vine, we are the branches. And so the branches, then very importantly, need to be pruned regularly in order to cultivate and grow the fruit that is rooted in him. And this morning we are going to look at, it's the the fifth fruit that is listed there in Galatians 5, verses 22 to 23. But before we look at that, before you throw it up there, sorry, uh, Lydia, I wanted to start off first by asking you a question that is in relation to the fruit that we're looking at this morning. If I were to ask you, uh, think of the, the greatest act of kindness that you have ever experienced in your life, that someone has done for you, what would that be? What would be the greatest act of kindness aside from the... The act of God sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross. Aside from from that act of Him coming, dying for your sins, and so the gift of salvation, what is the greatest act of kindness that you have ever experienced? And what is the impact that it had on your life? I was thinking and praying about it uh, this last week, and and something came to my mind uh, an act of kindness that I experienced, there have been many in my life from other people. But something that I was reminded about was when I was a teenage boy at the age of 13 and 14. I think it was in 1997, 98, roughly that period of time. Now, if you know anything about young boys or teenage boys at the age of between 12, 13, 14, 15, it's a very confusing time of your life. Very confusing for various reasons. Hormonal changes, peer pressure, your body is changing. And so when I was 13, 14, man, it was, it was a hard time. Acne in high school there in South Africa. We don't have middle school and I'm, I'm a proponent of high school, grade 8 to grade 12, because the seniors would sort out the juniors, okay? You wouldn't have uh, uh, this nonsense that I believe we see many times in the middle schools and people having a fear of middle schools because the behavior is so bad. I don't know, in South Africa it worked just to throw us all in one high school 
and the grade eights and the nines would get in line because the tens and elevens and twelves would sort them out. But when I was in grade eight, man, I was I was going through a season and a time in my life where it was really tough and challenging. I was going through all of these changes, uh, struggling with my identity, figuring out, listen, what's going on? Because all my friends, you know, they were popular amongst girls. I wasn't. And I was really genuinely, I remember it so clearly, going through a period of time where I was kind of depressed and even thinking about, listen, am I even attracted to girls? Wrestling with that. But I remember so clearly in that period of time that I had a foundation of God's truth and, and His will for my life that I said, you know what, no, I'm going to trust God. But a, a specific act of kindness that also happened during this period of time was, it's related to my teeth. Uh, I had my front eye teeth were very prominently sticking out. They were high. They, my my jaw and, and the space that I had in my mouth wasn't enough for all the teeth. And so um, I really looked like a bit of a vampire. And it really dealt a blow to my self-confidence when it came to these other issues, right? Uh, and if you know anything about Rudy, I, I like to laugh, I like to smile. So it was, it was challenging and at, at that age, right? Like you're very self-conscious. And so I had a very good friend that I was visiting with regularly, and uh, lots of sleepovers at, at his place. And his parents really took me in as one of their own. They knew my house circumstances, my father being an alcoholic, uh, bipolar depressed, struggling with his health. They didn't know all of those details, but they knew something wasn't right. And, and, and together with that, my mother suffering with schizophrenia. And I've shared that before. That was kind of like this house that I grew up in. And... And I've always experienced that, and, and you know how friends would take me in, and their parents treat me very kindly. And, and then what had happened was they had other friends, uh, of which this the the man was a dentist, and he saw how I was, you know, struggling with a situation with my teeth. And the one time he said, "Listen, Rudy, come to our clinic. Let's have a look what we can do for you." And so I did that. I went. He had a look. He said. Okay, listen, this is what we can do. We can't give you braces. I'm not an orthodontist, but I'm going to be able to pull the teeth that are right behind those eye teeth. We'll make you a mouthpiece with a brace. And if you wear this faithfully, religiously, like I, I believe that it will push those eye teeth back. And man, I was blown away. Um, I said, yes, please. And my parents were super thankful. And that is, that is what the guy did. Uh, gave me the mouthpiece. And I wore it religiously. During the night, it was painful. It was sore. And I can't remember exactly how long it took. But eventually, those teeth got pushed back. Now, I don't have straight teeth. If you know Rudy and if you've seen my teeth, they are pretty big. Uh, and they can be skewed. And even if I go to the dentist for examination here, the first time the dentist was like, listen, why are you missing these teeth? And I have to explain them. But it, it's given me an opportunity to explain to this uh, other dentists, listen, this is what happened. Um, didn't have money for it, but someone was really kind. Now, I share that example with you because I look at that and it was something that could seem insignificant. But I look back at it and it was a redemptive kindness that was shown towards me. 
It was redemptive, restorative, and transformative. Even a small thing like that for me and my teenage years. And those folks were Christians, by the way. And so I look back at it, and, I, and I'm like, that's the, the grace of God in my life, providing for me in that kind of a way, in that small way. And so I want to relate it to, of course, our fruit that we're looking at today. And Lydia, you can throw it up there. Out of Galatians 5, verses 22 to 23, which says this, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And what, a, what the claim is that I want to make this morning is that true kindness that is rooted in God's love is a God by love that is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that kind of kindness or sort of kindness is redemptive and should be redemptive. It should be restorative. It is the sort of kindness that leads people to ask, what kind of a God is this that He would be so loving, that He would be so kind to forgive me for who I am? And the reason for that is, is, is because this kindness is, as we have said, rooted in God's love. 1 Corinthians 13 says this, verses 4 to 5. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. That is what love is. That is who God is. He is patient. He is kind. And so that is what we're going to look at. And, and this case that we're making, again, I want to remind you, Glenn used this scripture out of Matthew 7 last week. It is important for us as God's people to understand the, the sort of kindness that we have the privilege to show others and first and foremost show to God's people. And it's important for us to, to trust that He is the one by His Spirit to cultivate it in us because we are warned in Matthew 7 verses 21 to 23 that there will be acts of kindness. It looks like kindness, but in the end, it's not the, the sort of kindness that's going to lead to everlasting life for, for many folks. He says this in Matthew 7 verses 21 to 23. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Fascinating and scary text, right? Like, if you were to ask me, listen, what are some really awesome acts of kindness? I would say, first and foremost, prophecy. Paul says, if there's any gift of the Spirit, the church needs to pursue its prophetic word. Prophecy. Here we see these guys were prophesying in Jesus' name. Jesus didn't know them. Casting out demons. I don't know when last you cast out a demon, but that's an act of kindness in my mind. If there's someone who's possessed or oppressed, what an act of kindness. These people didn't know Jesus. Miraculous works. Surely an act of kindness. Didn't know Jesus. 
And if you read 1 Corinthians, the first part of 1 Corinthians 13, we see, of course, that Paul says, even if I do all of these works of prophetic words and words of knowledge and, and miraculous workings, and I do not have love, I am nothing. And so, again, the basis is of this place that we want to be a church that are cultivating the fruit of the Spirit through the Spirit that is within us so that we are known by our fruit, fruit that are kind, that are patient. Now, before we get to our main text and before we pray, I, I will get to pray. I realized as I'm going on here, this is a long introduction. Still have to pray. Um, I just want... <laughs> Don't worry, we did pray before we, we started uh, there upstairs. But I just quickly wanted to, it's a game that always says a bit, bit of geeky greeky. Um, I, I'm not a, someone who speaks Hebrew or Greek, but I just quickly wanted to uh, lay a foundation again of the meaning of kindness and kind of like our reference point out of the Old Testament. What do we see? How, how is it? Spoken of in the Old Testament, what is the word used to describe this kind of kindness or, or who God is? Um, out of Ruth 2 verse 20, we see this following verse. And Naomi said to her, he's speaking to Ruth, uh, she's speaking to Ruth, um, a, daughter, a daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord. She's speaking about Boaz. And so the Lord whose kindness, and that Hebrew word is kesed, has not forsaking the living or the dead. So there was this knowledge and this belief and this truth of who God is and was. That he was kesed, he was kind. Another way that this word kesed was also used was, for example, in Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, kesed, and to walk humbly with your God. In other translation, it is used as mercy. So kased was a word that was used for, yes, kindness, God's kindness, but also God's mercy. And together with that was, was the understanding that, listen, O oh man, people of God, what is it that I require of you? It is this, do justice, love mercy, as I am merciful. Okay? It was also used and understood in the sense of speaking words of kindness, but words that might not seem kind sometimes. Psalm 141 verse 15 says this, Let a righteous man strike me, it is kindness, kesed. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. What's the last time you felt like when someone rebukes you or corrects you that, hey, this is great, I feel refreshed? <laughs> we don't enjoy that, do we? But it's thought of in that way, and it's very much in line with Proverbs 27, verse 6, that says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. It doesn't mean that everyone who wounds you is a friend. There will be many people who wound you, but true friends will be able to speak the truth in love. That's kind of like said in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there in Galatians 5, that kindness, that Greek word is Christotes, and it comes from 
Christos, and I found it really interesting if you look at these other variations that can be pronounced and spelled C-H, and it's pronounced Christus. And in Afrikaans, we pronounce Jesus Christ, Jesus Christus. It's kind of like where we get our Christus from. But Christos is kindness that is useful and profitable. In other words, it's a kindness or to be kind uh, that, that is described as an act of goodness, excellence, and uprightness that is useful and profitable because it meets real needs in God's way. It's meeting a need in God's way. Uh, another, an, another way in which it is described in the New Testament is in Acts 28 verse 2, we see native people from the island of Malta, when Paul was shipwrecked, they ended up on this island. There were native people that Paul says, or Luke writes actually, the people showed unusual kindness, philanthropia. That's where we get that word philanthropist from. And they showed that kindness by kindling a fire and welcomed Paul and those that were on that island. So why do I share that? We're going to see that all of this is who God is. God is kind to us, a, kind, a kindness that is useful, it's profitable, but it is generous. If you think about philanthropy, it's about generosity. It's about splashing upon people and serving them, helping them, but in God's way. And the question is, what is God's way? And that is the title of our sermon today. What a long intro. Redemptive kindness. You ready for this? <laughs> you ready? For... Redemptive kindness is the title. Okay. Um, and what I'm going to show us today, I'm going to walk us through, of course, a scenario where Jesus demonstrates redemptive kindness. And what I'm going to show us is that that, kind, that kindness engages, that kindness is truth, that kindness is gospel. Before we get started with our main text, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you came and you showed us in the flesh who the Father is. Um, Lord, you said that you and the Father are one. If we have seen you, we have seen the Father. And so we thank you that we can look towards you and see the Father's heart for redemptive kindness. And I just thank you this morning that I can now ask for your spirit to come and lead us, to come and show us what is your heart for us today when it comes to kindness. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, the first point, kindness engages... And I'm going to ask that you turn, if you have your Bibles, hopefully you have your Bible with you, to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. And it's a long piece of, of Scripture or passage that we're going to be working through this, this morning. And it's a very well-known interaction between Jesus and a Samaritan woman at the well. So let's read together. It says there in John 4, verses 1 to 3, and we're going to first read until verse 10. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that's now John the Baptist, 
Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and he departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It, it was about the sixth hour. So right about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So a bit of context here, of course, is Jesus, according to the Gospel of John, after starting his ministry, after picking out his 12 disciples, has a couple of really interesting interactions. In, in John 2, we read that he is at a wedding, and he performs his first miracle. He takes water and he turns it into wine. And there's a great feast. There's a great party. And then we see in John 3, Jesus has this interaction with Nicodemus. And sorry, before he has this interaction with Nicodemus in John 2, we do read that, that Jesus has this interaction with a bunch of people, specifically the religious leaders outside of the temple courts or in the temple courts, where he comes and he cleanses the temple. There's a bunch of people that are uh, trading, they're selling animals, doves, pigeons, lambs, right before there is a, a feast. And Jesus cleanses that area because he says, listen, this area is supposed to be a place of prayer for all nations. It's kind of like the equivalent of us gathering here at the ledge, but while we're gathering and preaching and praying, right outside, we have got stalls set up and we are trading. We are selling a bunch of stuff so that we can raise money and it's all for our own profit. And then someone comes in, maybe Glenn, with a whip and he's like cracking that whip. And he scatters the people. He's like, listen, this place is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations here in Squamish. That's what Jesus did. Now that ticked a lot of people off. And, and after this skirmish, the Pharisees realized, oh boy, we've got something on our hands here. What's going on? Who is this Jesus guy? We have then the interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus, who is this uh, PhD theologian from Briarcrest University or seminary or from Trinity Western. And he comes in secret in the, in the dark and he's like asking Jesus these questions. Listen, Jesus, we can see you are surely a teacher of God. And Jesus stumps him by saying, listen, unless you are born again, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And he has this interaction with Nicodemus, who is this so-called 
teacher of Israel, but he doesn't grasp what it means to be born again. He asks Jesus, how can I be born again? Will I crawl back into my mother's womb? Jesus says, listen, unless you're born of water and of spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus doesn't understand. And now Jesus is in John 4, learning that these Pharisees, they are now concerned. They hear about rumors of Jesus' ministry. Supposedly, he is baptizing more people than John the Baptist. And they were scared of John the Baptist because John the Baptist was not, he didn't have kind words for the Pharisees, did he? He was calling them out for their hypocrisy. He was saying they were a brood of vipers. And so they are now concerned because Jesus Christ, or Jesus of Nazareth, rather, at that stage, as he is known, his ministry is growing. And Jesus decides that he's rather going to go up north to Galilee. He's heading towards where he's, he's got his base for his ministry because his time has not come to stay in Jerusalem to die on the cross. He knows his time is not yet to confront these religious leaders on their hypocrisy. Now, what is interesting is we see it says he had to pass through Samaria. Now, quickly throw up that, that uh, map there. Now, this is just a basic map of Israel. And you will see here at the bottom is Jerusalem. But there were three ways that he could have gone and, and headed up to Galilee. He could have gone west. And the route in the red on the east is actually the route that the majority of the Jews that were pious, that were anti-Samaria, would go through, they would have to go through Jericho over the Jordan River and then travel and, and all that to avoid Samaria. But Jesus chooses the shortest path to go to Galilee. He chooses to go through Samaria. Now, question is why? What was going on here? Why were so many Jews avoiding Samaria? Well, of course, the history goes back to 930 years BC when the Israeli nation or kingdom split in two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, Judah and then Israel. Israel, the northern kingdom, were basically the Sumerian region. They had Samaria as their capital city. But then around 722 BC, that kingdom fell to the Assyrian Empire. And what was the result? The Israelites were taken captive. They were exiled. The cream of the crop were taken away. And then Gentiles were brought into that area. And they intermingled with the Israelis that were left. And so what was left was a people group who was a mixed race, according to the Jews. They had broken God's law to intermarry with Gentiles. So from that period onwards, up until Jesus' day, there was this hatred towards them, racial prejudice, political issues, religious issues, because they had set up false idols and false worship in that area. So that is the context. And Jesus knew this. Jesus has redemptive kindness in mind that he chooses to go because he has an appointment. His kindness is a kindness that engages. He engages this woman at the well. Now, there's a lot of history about this well in this area. It mentions there it's Jacob's well. Of course, if you go and read the Old Testament, 
We know that at this well, this is where Isaac, well, it's basically uh, Isaac's slave who went to go look out and find a wife for him. It's also where Jacob met his wife. This area had a history of then Jacob's family. Jacob had one daughter, Dinah. In this area, she was, in that period of time, she was raped. And there was a lot of sin committed after that with the brothers and all of the children, all these boys, the, the, the tribes of, of Jacob or Israel, then taking matters into their own hands to go and vindicate their sister. And they went and they, they murdered the people that did that to their sister. So there was a lot of blood history there. There was a, a lot of animosity. Jesus knew this. And so this is why the woman at the well asks Jesus, how is it that you, you're a Jew and you're a man, how is it that you talk to me? And we also got to understand that when he meets her at the well, it's at noon, it's, it's at a point in time, it's, it's during the day, it's the hottest day of uh, uh, time of the day. They would only normally go and collect water in the mornings and in the late afternoons or evenings. So Jesus knows this and he interacts with her, he engages with her. Even though it could create a lot of issues, even though he is a Jewish rabbi. And the point under this I want to make is it's the picture again of how God is kind. Jesus is kind and it's a redemptive kindness that brought him to us in the flesh. To be amongst the lowly of the lowly. But to what end? Why? Why did Jesus have this encounter? Why was he fixed on having this interaction with this woman? Let's read on. John 4 verses 11 to 13. And this is under point 2. Kindness is truth. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will, be, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus interacts with this woman, and she doesn't get it. It's like Nicodemus. She is thinking literally about water. She is asking questions. Listen, sir, you, you say you're going to give me living water. You don't, you don't have anything to draw this water from. Do you know how deep this well is? And she wants this water that he is talking about. 
And then Jesus changes the conversation into what it's really about. It's about her soul. It's about the state of her life. He tells her, go get your husband. And she answers half-truthly, right? She gives him the half-truth. But Jesus gives her the whole truth. Redemptive kindness is not half-truths. It's the full truth. He tells her exactly what the situation is in her life, what the sin is. This lady, this woman, had most probably built up her whole life on an identity that was found in marriage or men. That had led her to a situation that she had five already. We don't entirely know how it happened that she had had five, five husbands. We know out of Jesus' teaching and out of that culture... They were really making use of the legality of divorce to just divorce women for whatever reason. So it might have been that she was, had come out of many abusive relationships. We didn't know. But it led her to the sixth guy that she was with was not her husband. And so Jesus just gives her this plain truth. But look at his response. He doesn't say, and that is why you are an adulterer or a fornicator. He doesn't accuse her. He doesn't condemn her. He just gives her the truth. This is your situation. You're telling the truth. And then what happens? She tries to change the subject. She's in a corner. She recognizes Jesus. Can only know this as a result of God's power. She says, sir. Or we're not there yet. We're going to see that. She says, I perceive that you're a prophet. But she changes the conversation very quickly. And we do the same. We're going to see this in this next point. Point number three, kindness is gospel. After the truth comes the good news. She says to him, so I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He is who is called the Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Jesus gives her the truth. She jumps to religion. Jesus tells her, listen, you are in sin. And she tries to justify it by saying, oh, hold on. I'm part of this people group. We, we worship at the right place. Uh, you Jews think you're in the right by worshiping in Jerusalem. It's the equivalent of us saying, hold on, I, I'm at the right church. Jesus, I'm with the rock church and our statement of faith have got all the right things. 
We even have male elders. Or the opposite. It's the equivalent of that. She is jumping to justifying certain things in her life as a result of her religiosity. You could say it of any denomination. You could say it of any other clan, so to speak, in Christian circles. We have all fell for the trap in a certain way of taking a, a secondary issue. And what I mean is, it's, a, it's an open-hand issue. It's not to do with who God is, the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's not about salvation. But it's a loose-hand issue. Let's say, for example, like tongues or leadership, and we hold very tightly onto it. Now, in her, in her situation, her sin is not a loose-hand issue. There are some of us, we have taken sins in our own life, but also in the lives of people that we work with, the lives of, of people at, in our families and in the culture, and we have made that a closed-hand issue. And we said, listen, no, this, I hold very strongly to this. And we do that in the same way. We're not willing to let our religiosity go and let Jesus deal kindly through his truth and his gospel with our sin. And Jesus, in the end, tells this woman, the Messiah, the one that you think is still to come, I'm here right in front of you. It's kindness that engages it's kindness that is truthful. It's kindness that is gospel. It's good news. Because listen, what we're going to see is the outcome of this story is profound. But before we get to the final outcome, we have to ask ourselves, what is the application for us today in conclusion? The application is very simple. Firstly, if... If you have never had this kind of interaction with Jesus before, it might be that you have been religious your whole life. But if you have never had a face-to-face -face interaction through God's Word and by the power of the Spirit, where Jesus is talking to you about an issue in your life that is a hindrance and a barrier between you and Him, which is called sin, then listen to this. Romans 2 verse 4 says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that it's God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It is an opportunity. Listen, God is patient. God is kind. But the purpose of it is, is so that you can come to him. Have you ever had that interaction before with him that his kindness has drawn you in, that he has shown you your sin? through His truth, and the gospel then that you can be forgiven, that you are forgiven. Secondly, for anyone who is in Christ, the question is, what is your current interaction with Jesus? Are you running to a well that has got water that is just gathering there as a result of rain and dew? Because that is what Jacob's well was. It was not a well with a spring of living water. 
Hence why Jesus is telling the lady, I want to give you living water. You are coming here to this well. This, this water is it's not alive. Do you know that our religious activity can be a well that is dry? There's no life. Because all that it is is, is me trying to attain God's love through what I'm doing. But for us who are in Christ Jesus, He invites us to have interaction with Him on a daily basis through His Word and by His Spirit that we are made alive, that we are born of the Spirit of God, that we worship Him in spirit and in truth. By the power of the Holy Spirit, but by the truth of His Word. Because that is what He is calling us to. And I, together with that, I want to ask if, if that's the case, or ask you that question, what is your interaction with Jesus like? I also want to ask you, what is your interaction like with others in the church with regards to your sin? How often do you meet with someone face to face to confess your sin? Who is that person that you're able to do that with that walks a path with you, an, an accountability partner. Because it's one thing to confess your sin to Jesus who you do not see face to face, but it's another thing to do that to Jesus in the flesh as a fellow brother and a sister. Because that is what Jesus is calling us to do. It's redemptive kindness. It's kindness to do that. And then our last application, I want to encourage us to consider then as, as God's people that are cut to the heart and repent and are filled by spirit. Titus 3 verses 4 to 6 says the following. But when the goodness, the Christotes, and loving kindness, philanthropia of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of generation and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works, to kindness. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The outcome in the end, if we look at John 4, is the following. After Jesus shows redemptive kindness through interaction, through his truth, and through the good news, that God is not interested in which church you are at. God is not interested in where you go and worship. God is not interested in your doctrine. Yet, it is important. He is interested in whether you are alive by the Spirit. If that is the case, the outflow will be correct teaching doctrine. Yes, those things will follow. But that is not what brings you to salvation. What brings you to salvation is the truth of the good news that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again. If you believe that, you are born again and you can worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Listen to what happened to this woman after this interaction. It says in John 4, verses 25 to 28, 
So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I'd ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. She went away and she told her town. She told the people. She told these Samaritans who were despised, who were looked down on. That is the kindness that God wants us to then display to a world that is aching for love and kindness. And we need to ask ourselves, who is our Samaria? Our Samaria is right here amongst us, first and foremost. There are some of us, we have got Samaritans, we have got fellow brothers and sisters. We look down upon and we believe that, listen, they are so far away from God's grace and mercy as a result of certain beliefs or certain acts or certain lifestyles. It might be different denominations and we avoid people because that interaction is going to be awkward. But culturally, let's think about a rock church. Who is our Samaria? They are right here at our doorstep. But it's pretty simple. If Jesus has touched your life to be born again of water and of spirit, the outcome is it will come out of your mouth. That is true redemptive kindness, to share what God has done in your life with those who need it so desperately. So let us pray this morning and consider Jesus. Um, we will have communion after that. I'm not sure who's doing communion. Is that Glenn? Okay. Glenn will come up and, and we'll do communion. Let us just pray. Father, we thank you for your redemptive kindness towards us. Father, we thank you that in Christ there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation at all. And you have done it all. You have forgiven us. You have saved us by your grace and your mercy. But Lord, you have saved us not just to gather for ourselves, but Lord, to disperse, to go. To live out this redemptive kindness, first and foremost, in our families and to our neighbors. But Lord, to those that we deem to be our enemies. So God, I come and pray in Jesus' name. By your spirit, come and help us to worship in spirit and in truth. And from that fountain of life that, that springs up, that Lord, we will be fountains of life in our families and in our workplaces. Lord, that is where the Rock Church is present. We are present in Squamish through your people that scatter. So I thank you for that. Thank you that I can pray for us as we Scatter here today. Father, may we scatter this week with that in mind. Can I be an encounter in my workplace today where there will be living water that wants to flow? I pray that in your name and we thank you. Amen.